the most important thing is to be true to yourself. We say to girls, you can have ambition, but not too much. Women's rights are human rights once and for all. We realize the importance of light when we see darkness. America's women are tired of hearing that pay inequality isn't real. Women around the world are not yet always taught by their immediate environment that they are strong, powerful, beautiful, and equal. Playing like a girl means you're a badass. Hi, Riveters. This is Sally Smith, and I am here with our new guest host, Jay Newton-Small. Hey, Sally. What's, What's up, up, Jay? What's up, Sally? So excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> We're so excited to have you. You're like a big deal. I was thinking on the way over here that like you're a capital J journalist, whereas Buffy and I are like air quotes journalists. <laughs> <laughs> That's so not true. In this day and age, everybody is a journalist, for better or for worse. Yeah, but you're a real one. <laughs> the rest of us are air quotes. Um, so what have you been up to, man? You started a whole new organization, whole new business. Oh gosh. It's, um, yeah. I mean, I'm, so that's why I'm not like a capital J journalist anymore. I mean, I remain a contributor to time magazine, um, and, uh, and an author as you know. Um, but I started a company, um, it's a startup called memory. Well, and it grew out of my experience with my dad who had Alzheimer's. And a few years ago I had to move him into a home. Um, I was his primary caregiver. And uh, they asked me to fill out this like 20 page questionnaire about his life. And I'm like, who remembers 20 pages of handwritten data points for like the 150 residents there? So I handed in the form blank and was like, look, I'm a journalist. Why don't you just let me write down his story for you? Um, I did. And it, it absolutely transformed his care. His caregivers remembered the story. or They would tell each other about it. And the home was like, this is amazing. Can you sort of do this for everybody here? And what started really as a project a few years ago has now grown into a company. And we have more than three hundred journalists across the country working with us. And um, we each person's page is we have a website where each person's page is um, anchored by their story and family members can upload their loved one's favorite music and arts and videos and readings. And that way, whomever's sitting with them, whether it's a paid caregiver or um, a grandchild has a whole toolbox of things with which to engage them. That's so cool. We're so proud of you. Oh, thank you. And it's really, I mean, is it scary starting your own thing? Has it been going really well? How are you feeling? It's like terrifying and exhilarating. Um, I think it was Elon Musk who said that doing a startup is like staring into infinity while chewing on glass. And like, <laughs> and it's like, so on any given day, so fun. it's incredibly yeah. inspiring. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. I might change the world and yet incredibly painful <laughs> and like right. and really hard. So, um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's so awesome. It's, it's, you know, you really feel like you can change things. And I think as a journalist in particular, having been on the sidelines and you and Buffy, get to do a lot more actually going out and changing the world. You always, I always felt like I was stuck sort of calling balls and strikes. And now I'm a little bit more free to kind of go out and change things and do things and that's, and really make a difference. And that's been really fun. Um, but the lack of salary part's been really scary. So, <laughs> well, I hate to tell you this, but the Riveters doesn't pay either. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that. I knew that. So, it's, but it's still a passion project and I, I just have always loved what you guys do. And it's such an amazing show. And especially in this time where there's so much going on in women's world, um, it's such an important podcast to do. Well, we appreciate that. And you're our very first guest. So Yay. it's all it's just like full circle of love. All right, man. Well, let's get to our interview, which I just watched you do with the lovely Stephanie Shriak of Emily's List. This season of The Riveters is brought to you by Amalgamated Bank. 
Not all banks are created equal. Not all banks invest in progressive causes. Not all banks champion women's rights, workers' rights, and immigrants' rights. Not all banks are committed to a greener, more sustainable planet. Not all banks seek true financial opportunity for all. But this one does. Amalgamated Bank, the bank of the progressive community. Move your money to Amalgamated. To learn more, visit amalgamatedbank.com forward slash riveters. Member FDIC. Hi, uh, my name is Jay Newton-Small, and I am co-founder of MemoryWell and author of Broad Influence, How Women Are Changing the Way America Works, um, as well as our main contributor to Time uh, magazine, that, you know, funny old thing with the red border. Um, and I'm here today, uh, really honored to be a guest host um, of the Riveters podcast, which I was so honored to be the very, very first person that they interviewed for the podcast, which is so awesome. Um, but I'm here today to interview the head of Emily's List, uh, Stephanie Shriak. Um, so I wanted to start with you, Stephanie. Actually, I wanted to like go back to the way beginning and reading your bio and talk about sisterhood and what it means when you get your opponent's sister to vote for you. <laughs> when you this was a this was an election the beginning school. the beginning of it all. Uh, well, first Jay, I just welcome to Emily's list, and we're so thrilled to have you here in the building with us. Uh, We've got such, it's like so much going on here. I'm just so glad that you're here. And I've just also been so impressed with the work that you've been doing over the years. You know, we got to meet sort of at the beginning of my tenure at Emily's List, and you have really expanded to do just incredible, incredible work in public service. So I just, to you, sister, thank you for everything that you're doing. <laughs> you. I, and you bring up a very funny story. So I grew up in Butte, Montana. And yes, I was one of I was one of those kids who just wanted to do everything. And I really wanted to to be class president. And I was always involved with student government. And so I ran for class president a number of times in a row and I lost <laughs> over and over again. So I was not the popular girl, but I was the end. I was really energized. I was full of motivation. But you might've been the most qualified. Maybe, <laughs> I, maybe, maybe. I'm not sure about that, but I was definitely had the enthusiasm to do the job. Uh, but going into my senior year, uh, the school then voted for the student body president. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, Ha! First lesson, I was going to expand the electorate because it wasn't just going to be my class. It was also going to be the freshmen and sophomores. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I focused the entire campaign on the freshman and sophomore class. I forgot about mine. I'm like, this isn't working with my class. Uh, and then I did, in fact, as you speak about the sisterhood, I got a younger sister of one of my opponents to endorse my candidacy and work her class uh, to make sure that I got the votes. And that really, truly is how I won. And I was like, aha, there's something, there's something about sisters, but then there's really the sisterhood. And that's the key here. <laughs> um, well, it's a good lesson for this day and age is, is expanding the field. And that's certainly yes. an appropriate uh, theme for this particular election cycle. Um, so there's 14,000 women who've contacted Emily's List, right, uh, about running for office in this cycle. Oh, Jay, it's it's extraordinary. It's it's we've never seen it before. It's been over 14,000. It started uh, election the day after the election. It continues every day. Mm -hmm. I looked before I came in this morning. 27 women yesterday came to our website.
website and signed up saying, I want to run for office. Now, that doesn't mean they're all going to run in 2017 and 2018. But what that means is that for the first time, we have this extraordinary pool of women who have raised their hand and said, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. And that's been our biggest problem for 30 years (laughs) is getting women to say, I want to do this. Mm -hmm. Usually we go into their kitchens and are like, please, you can do this. There's a path. We'll help you. And they're like, oh, I don't know. We'll think about it. No, these women like are over that step. Mm -hmm. Now the question is what, you know, for them, what race, what service do they want to provide? Uh, what's the timing? Because like I said, they're not all going to run in 17 and 18. But this this is the next the next generation of leaders that are going to be running for a decade. Well, so the year of the women, 1990, was a presidential year, right? So we were lucky. 1991 yeah. into 92 was a That's presidential right. year. And women always vote more in presidential elections, right? We make up 53, 53% of the electorate and on average vote Uh, 10% more than men do in presidential years, but in off-presidential years, we vote a lot less, right? And so the statistic I was always told for 2014, which I know you're very well aware of, was that if the same number of women had voted in the 2014 election that had voted in 2012, a presidential year, Democrats would have not only have kept the Senate, they would have won back the House. So we're we're not in a presidential cycle right now. How do you get women to turn out? Well, we are definitely in a unique environment that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in electoral politics, and I've, as you know, I've been doing this for longer than I thought I probably would be, but for two decades. And we really do look at historic trends. And, and, and your first round of historic trends will tell you that the party in power, which in this case is the Republican Party, uh, loses on average 28 House seats uh, in the first midterm. We'll lose on average, you know, seven to 10 gubernatorial seats, which then just trickles down. You lose uh, legislative chambers. So just on a pure, like, what what history would tell us, the Democrats should be in a pretty decent position. I mean, in the U.S. House, we need 24 seats. And the Senate, and so, you have twenty more than 20 seats up that are Democrats. Yeah, the, the Senate's a, a tougher map because we have so many Democrats up for re-election, mm-hmm. uh, 10 of them in states that Trump won, five of them in states that Trump won by double digits. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that we have 25 Democrats up. We have have them up in some really tough states. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emily's List has nine uh, women in the Senate who are up for re-election, wow. which is more than half of the Democratic women serving uh, in the Senate. So this is a big, big election year. But sort of stepping back and thinking about the the, the Democratic trend. So, okay, there you go. Uh, the other thing that happens is that the party in power, their voters are a little less excited because they're in power. And the party that's out of power, there's more enthusiasm. So that's why you see these swings. That's a normal situation. Mm-hmm. But then we have Donald Trump. <laughs> and we have this, I mean, I can barely find the words, but this just outrageous behavior. He can barely find the words. I mean, he is, he can, <laughs> that is so true. And if he can't, he makes them up. So we, who needs language? Who needs facts? It's a whole new era that we're in. Uh, but what his election has meant and, the, and Hillary Clinton's loss mm-hmm. and the fear of so many people in this country, particularly um, women and particularly women of color, uh, who are saying, wait a second, everything that we have fought for is on the line and 
and everything that we hope for for the future could disappear. Mm -hmm. And they want to hear that they want to make sure their voices are heard. And so what we have seen since Election Day is a, a uprising of women and women leaders saying, we got to change the situation. We got to make sure our voice is heard. It's, you know, from the Women's March, which was right? I mean, we're all in the room like, yeah, it was on. <laughs> where the room is like, yes, Women's March. It was like nothing I've ever been part of. I don't know what you'd say. But I was in Africa. Sorry, I missed it. Or nothing you saw. You saw it on television, saw, though, well, a little bit. Maybe not. Okay. <laughs> but, Jay totally missed the Women's March, everybody. Send sorry. her pictures. Send her pictures. <laughs> we'll send you some pictures, too. It but was it was the really of wanting to be as far away as humanly possible which, from this. Which I totally <laughs> respect. Uh, in fact, that was my initial plan as well, was to be away. And then you could, you could feel it building up. We're like, oh, this... This is real. These these incredible leaders who are putting together this march is like making it happen. And it's not just the march in Washington or the march in San Francisco or L.A. or New York. It's it's the hundreds of marches that happen in small towns across this country, whether it was Boise, Idaho or Anchorage, Alaska or, or Nashville, Tennessee, where you don't expect a big you know rising of, of women and good men who marched with us. So it starts with that. And then you've got all these women who are stepping up who want to run. Mm -hmm. You've seen some of the polling that shows that 86% of the calls coming into the Congress uh, telling members to stand up against Trump's nominees, 86% are coming from women. Mm -hmm. wow. like, this is a different environment. And so we, we do always fear that in a midterm, women uh, drop, women voters drop off. I like, it's too soon to tell today, but this is different. I've never seen anything like this. I think there's real energy even among the voters but how, in this race. How much progress can we, you know, going back to the numbers, right? Yeah. So more than 20 seats in the Senate, Democrats need to defend, yeah. you know, 10 of them in states won by Donald Trump. Then you've also got 23 seats you need to flip in the House and a House, and, and a house that is incredibly gerrymandered, incredibly like, you know, just tough to flip. How much do you honestly think you could win either House? Oh, I do. I do, particularly the House of Representatives. Uh, That's interesting. So you think just, the House is a better chance I, than the Senate? I, I do right now, and this is why. So something something else strange happened in the last election. Now, the Republicans spent a lot of energy gerrymandering seats, um, where where which means they've like draw, drew these lines so they're the perfect Republican districts. Interesting, though, Hillary Clinton won 23 districts that Republican Congress, mostly men, but Congress people, mm -hmm. I'll say, because there are a couple women in there, um, hold. Mm -hmm. So we need 24 seats as Democrats to pick up the House. 23 are districts that Hillary Clinton won. Think about that. And they are in interesting places, too. I mean, even look at now, let's look at this Georgia, the Georgia six race that's going on with John Ossoff right now. Now, this is not a district that Hillary Clinton won. But she lost by one point. Mm -hmm. Mitt Romney won it by, I think, over 20, at least well into double, double digits. That's interesting. So first, you got a bunch of Romney-Clinton voters. There is a whole group of voters who do not want to vote for Donald Trump. And that, in fact, did happen in that district. So the question I have is, does that mean they're going to go vote for a Democrat for Congress? Well, according to the polling, the answer is yes. Because John Ossoff is, you know, at least tied, if not, you know, in a slight lead, but at least tied in a in a district that four years ago against we wouldn't, yeah, it, yes, against uh, against a Republican woman who is very anti-family and anti-choice, by the way. Uh, 
but this is this is a district we wouldn't Emily's list wouldn't have recruited in four years ago. I mean, to put it that way, like, so it's changed our recruiting patterns. It's changed the map. Uh, and with the energy with women candidates and women voters, I think the House is absolutely in play. The Senate, be again, because we've got uh, these members who are up for reelection, uh, folks like Claire McCaskill in Missouri and my, I used to, you know, you just heard I'm from Montana. So John Tester, who I used to work for, was his chief of staff. He's up for reelection. Uh, like these are folks who are living in states that Donald Trump, in fact, did win by double digits. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do they do? Here's the good news, though. In most of these places, the Republicans are, are having a hell of a time recruiting. Mm -hmm. Like they haven't gotten their tier top tier recruits against these folks. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because the environment is against the Republicans right now. And the energy of women across this country particularly in town halls and voters on the street, like are rare to go. And I'm not so sure that Republicans want to go take take on some of these senators who have just done a phenomenal job for their states, like Claire McCaskill. So Claire McCaskill's last re-election strategy was basically picking the, her the worst possible Republican in the field and basically helping him get win the primary <laughs> um, and and then running against him. And that was Aiken, right? Like the guy yeah, who was. basically said, oh. women have a natural defense against rape. Um, and oh. so like- and Yeah, that and just, if anybody <laughs> hasn't seen that that's listening to this, they should look up Todd Aiken and you will, it's so awful. I'm warning you. It is such <laughs> an awful thing to hear, but worth noting what some Republican men will say, and that was, oh, it was awful. You're right. That was a, that was a good strategy on Claire McCaskill's part. <laughs> so is that a strategy this time around again? Are you, are you looking to, to sort of empower some, some of the crazier people on the That's, right? Um, well, well, the good news is that the right seems to be empowering itself <laughs> and pulling out some of the fairly extreme members. And so we haven't quite, you know, we haven't quite seen the entire pool of candidates that are interested in running for Claire McCaskill because it's been a little a little slow. There's been some uh, public conversation about a Republican Congresswoman Ann Wagner who's mm -hmm. who's looking into it. She, you know, she's she's she is a congresswoman. She's been elected, but she doesn't have the statewide uh, reputation that Claire has. I mean, Claire knows that state inside and out. I mean, she is really, really good uh, and really takes care of the people of Missouri. But so it will be interesting to see sort of who the pool is first. I mean, what we had last time is we had a primary on the Republican side. We'll have to see if that's what happens this time. I wouldn't be surprised, though. So I want to get back to just the the, the 23 seats that Hillary won. Yeah. Um, and how much of a factor is education in this? I mean, are these highly educated districts? Because, yeah. um, and, and how do you, on the converse side, appeal to non-college educated white women, which was really the demographic that swung hard against Hillary yeah. in 2016? It's, it, it is the biggest question, I think, facing us uh, as a Democratic Party right now. So you have exactly hit it on these 23 House districts. These are suburban and exurban type districts, uh, seven in California, uh, four, I think, in Pennsylvania, a couple in Texas. Uh, but they're suburban districts and exurban districts. So this is a, a, a tick, pretty big tick higher of college educated voters. Now that's going to be good in good in eighteen, and we'll we'll keep working in those districts and think we can maybe. I mean, wouldn't it be something if we could realign those folks that have been Republicans for decades uh, into the Democratic Party under the Trump administration era, uh, which is possible. Uh, 
but but that only gets us so far and we need and we're all working together to really find um the right set of policies because we're democrats we've got a mile of policies you tell us your problem and we've got a policy for it that is that is like i always said i didn't i'm telling you we have had so many and they are great they are really really good if we could execute all the policies (laughs) we'd be in great shape uh but this is about values and this is about uh, pulling together the entire working class of this country and ensuring that they have opportunities to succeed and to ensure that their families have opportunities to succeed. And so we need to make sure as we move forward as, as a party, and I talk about this with our candidates particularly, and I would love to talk a little bit about the women running for governor, which is really cool, uh, particularly the women running for governors. We need to make sure that our economic values that we are sharing are going to be as strong for our African-American woman teacher with two kids in Philadelphia as it is for the for the copper miner in my hometown of Butte, Montana, you know, who is a you know white male like we we can do we are about lifting up everybody and providing opportunities for all people. Uh, and that's particularly those um, who are in the working class who are losing hope. And they're losing hope in rural Ohio and rural Iowa, but they're also losing or have lost hope in some cases in our urban centers. Well, that's interesting to me because there's this debate within the Democratic Party right now is it do you go to, you know, the base of the minorities, the Obama coalition, or do you reach out to those estranged union, like white voters, the Bernie crowd, the Elizabeth Warren crowd, and try to get them back in, try to rile them up? And right now it seems to be an either or. And what you seem to be saying is it's both. It's absolutely both. And it should be because, like, it, I mean, it, you know, first off, I would say I speak it from the from the party perspective is that this is who we are as Democrats. I mean, we believe in workers' rights and ensuring that you know everybody, no matter what their background, whatever their race, whatever their gender, wherever they're living, has a shot as a, at an economic opportunity that is just like providing for your family. We're not looking for the world here. We just like a little bit of the American dream would be really, really nice. And like, that's, you know, that's a lot of my family in Montana, in Minnesota. I've got family in Iowa and and Kansas. And, you know, my brother's an auto mechanic. My sister-in-law is a massage therapist. They do okay. They make it and they're happy. They just want to make it. Uh, but they need a- better access to healthcare, and they're lucky that they've got grandparents that can that can watch my nephew. But what if they didn't, and they don't have any childcare, and they don't have any paid leave, and they don't, you know, th- all of those things that are so helpful to that auto mechanic, my white brother in Kansas. This is all tied together, and this is absolutely an and because I believe there is more that holds our communities together than separates us, and that's what we have to focus on as a party. And I would argue, how as a country, but Ivanka is going to give us paid leave. Yeah, I heard that. I heard that. Yeah, yeah. She's she's been so helpful actually in the administration. Um, you know, encouraging her father to do the right things as he is you know, tearing apart our access to reproductive rights or our education system or, yeah, she's, good luck with that. Good luck Doesn't with that. Doesn't sound like you have a lot of faith in that. I have, no. No, I don't. Um, well, speaking of Trump, I have to note that today is the day of Comey's testimony. And I'm looking at my phone here where it says, Comey has accused the White House of, quote, lies plain and simple. Um, 
how likely is it do you think Trump is going to get impeached? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just <laughs> so I just made a really great emotion, which is true. Uh, I mean, we just don't know what we don't know, right? And I, it's funny. I was just our founder, Ellen Malcolm. Uh, who still serves as our chair of our board. I was on the phone with her on Monday and uh, okay, I'm just going to age myself. I'm just going to be on. I was like, so I'm 44. So I was born sort of right as Watergate. It was, I missed it all. Right. I was, I was born as that was happening. And so I asked her, I said, so what, what did it feel like in Washington during Watergate? Because I don't know what it felt like. And, 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 and is this similar? Like, is this, is this really similar to somebody who lived through it? And she was working at Common Cause at the time, I believe. And and she, it was funny because then we got into, we got to go watch All the President's Men. And we literally are like getting the movie this weekend because we like rewatch it all to just refresh our memories about it. Uh, by the way, great movie. If people haven't watched All the President's Men, you should totally watch it. It's so good. The flower pot in there. The flower <laughs> pot. There's a flower pot. I'll just leave it at that for those who haven't watched it. It's so good. Uh, uh, but it's the... Like putting it's just the putting the pieces together, and I mean I've got to believe as we're hearing Comey and uh, what he's saying that something's really wrong. Something is really really wrong, and I've never understood from the moment that the Russians hacked into our systems that there was not outrage, outrage out of that Trump campaign. Because any any American, all Americans should be outraged that a foreign government hacked into anything in our country. And there was not outrage. In fact, if I remember correctly, there was sort of a welcoming, like, please help us find some documents uh, in that really weird interview in August that Donald Trump did. I can't remember exactly what it was, but this, it's been very, I'm not surprised because Donald Trump says all kinds of things. So do I think he's going to get impeached? I don't know, but it sure seems like things are not moving in a good direction for him. I know a lot of Democrats who say they don't want to see him impeached because Mike Pence is so conservative and would be potentially much more effective and worse in many ways for the Democrats. What do you think? No, I I just say Donald Trump is causing massive, massive problems for this country. I mean, he's already put into place. As far as I'm concerned, there's deportation forces going on right now. They may not be called that, but they are putting good people away and they are deporting folks that are just like trying to work it and making their life a better life in America, what he has done to us internationally, what he has done to NATO and those relationships, what's going on now in the Middle East, what is going on in like, no, we have to put America first. And I just think that this man uh, is really damaging us. Let, on top of all of that, our place in the world, what he is doing to our Im immigrant community, what he is doing with, with women and rolling back uh, everything, he has also allowed racism and hatred and sexism to, to be public and has freed those who are filled with racism and sexism to just say it and act on it. And I'm not sure how we're going to get that back in any order. Um, we've always, it's always been there. And I'm not, I'm not naive to say, oh, this just happened. It's always been there. But folks can't walk down the street in some places anymore without being called names. And I know that's been the case in many of our communities, but it has gotten worse and there are more hate crimes and like this, the damage is done. 
And I think it's really important for all of us. It's like, we, we would be much better off with, I believe anybody else, Mm -hmm. frankly. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about women and 2020. Um, given that we just had a woman run for president, how soon do you think we will see a female president? Um, and let's talk about some of those names. Let's just start with that, but then let's talk about some of the names. Floated. Jay, I'm hoping you and I see like three women presidents in our lifetime yet, <laughs> at least, right? Yeah. We can do this. We can do this. The pipeline is strong. They're coming. Uh, you know, just, I mean, who, this election was so nuts last year. It's for so many reasons, but we'd lose, we'd sort of lose the moment that this is the first time in history in 2016 that a woman became the nominee of a major party for president. Mm-hmm. That is a, that is a glass ceiling broken. It is not the one we wanted to break, but it was the one that needed to break before the ultimate one is broken. And Hillary did win the popular vote by nearly 3 million votes. So there are, it's it's out there and you know, we need to get those geographically spread in a different way. <laughs> it's like tactically we need to do some things. So I I think we're I think I think it's very very possible that we see a woman in the you know a woman nominee in in the next election or at least in the next couple of election cycles. I I'll tell you this. We will have very good democratic women running for president in 2020 and 2024 and i believe every election we have passed that remember it's like oh there's a woman running like Mm -hmm. like there was so that was such a rarity that time has passed we will have women running Mm -hmm. consistently in every election i believe that so some of the names floated are people you are very close to. Yeah. You convinced Elizabeth Warren to run for the Senate. Uh, you know Kirsten Gillibrand mm-hmm. very well. Uh, what do you make of their potential candidacies? Well, I, I say this sort of about all of them because they all are so unique. Because the uh, the other two, because when you think there's sort of four right now that mm-hmm. get sort of risen to the top of the conversation, uh, and so it's Kirsten Gillibrand and Elizabeth Warren. There's also Amy Klobuchar uh, from Minnesota and Kamala Harris from California. And what I say about all, like all four of those is that they bring such unique perspectives themselves to the process. Uh, you could not find four more different women, I don't think. Like if you're like looking at their backgrounds and and how they interact and what issues drive them, they're really different. Uh, I think that's awesome. I hope all four are seriously considering. I really do. Uh, and and then we'll just and then for Emily's list, we'll just have to figure out what to do. That will be a embarrassment of riches if all four of them <laughs> run and um, we'll be cheering on and hoping <laughs> that they all do really well. So I do think they all bring really unique perspective. I think it's wide open, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think 2020 is wide open. I think we don't right now as a party and even as a country know what what it's going to be like, uh, what, what are the people going to be looking for? Uh, I think we're just too early to, to think that through. I just don't think we know particularly, I mean, we've got Comey going on today. I literally don't even know who's going to be president in four years. (laughs) So that is really complicated. (laughs) Well, there's so many people who are running, who are potentially floating to run who aren't political, right? Because they looked at Donald Trump and said, Hey, I don't need to have any experience in the political world. I can just run for president. So we could get like president Oprah, right? Right. That's right. That's right. You know, I know Sheryl Sandberg's name comes floating up every once in a while. Uh, uh, and I do think it's that sort of that unique time. Now, the real question is, what are the voters going to be looking for after this debacle? Mm-hmm. That I don't know. Well, That's 20- going to be very interesting. 2018 is the real test of that, it right? Is. Especially because it's such so. a smaller pool of voters. So if you can expand right. that pool, the big challenge. Um, 
No, that's right. But the enthusiasm is going to be on our side to do the expanding. Like the other side is not going to have near the enthusiasm. It's why you've seen these house specials uh, in pretty red places, including my home state of Montana, a lot closer than the election was last November. I mean, a lot closer. I mean, and yet people don't seem to be paying attention. His overall approval rating is just taking down 41, 40, 39, but it's not plummeting, right? And mm-hmm. and especially you look at those it's polling pretty, numbers. Pretty bad, though. I mean, it's, okay, it's historically <laughs> bad to begin with. But like <laughs> historically bad numbers. In fact, Quinnipiac this morning rolled out that he's at 34 in their poll. Gallup has him at 36. Yeah, Gallup, that's pretty bad. That's pretty. <laughs> but within 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 the universe of Republican voters, that makes sense. He's still really popular. Right? Within, I mean, he's still like 90, 92% of Republican voters still support him. And you break that down and you break out women in particular, especially non mm-hmm. going back to the non-college educated white women, they still love him. They still mm. back him. Well, but it's also early. These are folks who, you know, who voted for him because they were looking for, well, for variety, for change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they bought into sort of the, the conversation that he was, and he was having a real conversation about, uh, about economic, I mean, he was having conversations with other things I don't like, but he was having a conversation about trade that that really resonated in a lot of those pla- in a lot of places around the country, like Michigan, Ohio, you know, Iowa again, Wisconsin. So I, I'm not surprised. I mean, it's June of the first year. They folks just <laughs> voted for him, and we're Americans. We want to give our presidents a chance, particularly if you voted for the person. Uh, and ultimately, though. He's got to deliver something uh, to help those communities. And thus far, he has not done any of that. And ultimately, he will be judged by 18 on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the party will be judged and Paul Ryan will be judged on whether or not there's an actual tax plan that helps those communities. Uh, now, what we've seen already is like we know that tax plan is about protecting the wealthy at the expense of everybody else in this country. Mm-hmm. It's not going to help my brother in DeSoto, Kansas, and it's not going to help our our African-American sister who's got two jobs in Philadelphia. It's not. It's going to it's probably going to damage. And it'll really damage because they're also going to take away their health care. Mm-hmm. So so the proof is going to be in the in the pudding here and I think folks are going they're going to hold them accountable a year and a half from now. Certainly in 06 and 10, those midterm elections really pivoted on healthcare, right? And that seems to be the thing that yeah. that people are so sensitive about, like, don't mess with my Medicare, don't mess with That's my right. Medicaid. Um, do you think that that would be, is potentially the, like, clarion message in, in 18 as well? Boy, I right now, and a lot of things can change, obviously, mm-hmm. 12 months from now, but I, it's it's got, if it is not the top concern and voting issue, it's going to be one of the top two, I bet. Um, because it's real. I mean, folks, folks lose everything on on health disasters, you know. And now we've got this opioid crisis that is just ravaging our our states across the country. It's putting more and more pressure on families uh, to try to to save their loved ones. Uh, we're looking at. I mean, we're going to be looking at more and more bankruptcies, and we're talking about taking away the Medicaid expansion in these places. It's outrageous. Mm-hmm. It's outrageous. All right, so let's talk about the the governors, as I like to call them. <laughs> <laughs> those governors, those governors. Uh, so let's start with this. 
there are only two Democratic women governors in the entire country right now. We do not like this at Emily's List. It is very upsetting to us. And so we are on top of this. Uh, Here's the good news. We're talking to over 30 women in over 15 states about running for governor in 2018. We endorsed our seventh woman yesterday, Carrie Kennedy in Colorado. Uh, So we've got seven. Now, two of them are the incumbents, five challengers. Well, I shouldn't say challengers, a bunch of open seats, uh, but opportunities. And we and we have a number of places where there are more than one woman running. Like in Ohio, there are three very strong, good, all former Emily's List candidates running against each other for governor. Uh, So we are um, watching closely and uh, really proud of of all three. But some of these some of these women were talking about the 2024 and the 2028 mm-hmm. presidential races. I really see this pool of women running for governor as the potential pipeline as well for those future presidential races. So you know, let's talk about let's talk about Stacey Abrams in Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, who is. This extraordinary, strong, smart, talented leader who's been the minority leader in the Georgia House of Representatives. Uh, She would be the first African-American woman ever elected to governor in the country, Mm -hmm. ever, which, by the way, it's 2017. Like, that is way beyond time, and we need to do this. Uh, and she's put together a really, really strong organization, and uh, we're and it's Georgia, and we know it's tough as Democrats, but we also know that there's a growing millennial population and an African American population that is often not focused on uh, with regard to expansion of, of voting and to go in and really purposefully register, mobilize, energize the African-American community in Georgia, Like we can win this. Uh, and good, strong you know, Democrats who are, are consistently engaged, aren't engaged right now in this Georgia 6 House race, mm-hmm. are going to feel a lot of energy going in. So I like the dynamics of what's coming together in this Georgia race around Stacey. Uh, we're also probably supporting Gwen Graham, Florida. In Florida, this is a big She's one. A friend of mine. She's great. Yeah. Oh, we, I, Gwen, I'm just such such a fan of. I've known her for quite a while as well. We proudly supported her in congressional race. She actually served in Congress in this congressional race or congressional uh, district. That, by the way, she had no business being in. It's such a conservative district, mm-hmm. but she is the kind of person that gets folks at the table and brings them together. And that's how she won that district. Well, she's her father's daughter. She's a, and she <laughs> is, yeah, she's Bob Graham's daughter. And so she just knows that state inside and out. And I think could just be an extraordinary governor, uh, really knows uh, how to get things done. Uh, we also have uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham, who's running in New Mexico. She's currently in Congress, uh, stepping up to run for this governorship. Now, this is another one where it's open. The All three of these are open seats, mm-hmm. uh, all held by re- current, currently held by Republican mm-hmm. governors. And so is there's opportunities. Term She's termed out. Oh, She's termed out. Uh, so, this will, so we don't know who the Republican is there yet either. Actually, we don't really know who the Republicans are in any of these races. Uh, but Michelle is this extraordinary Latina who is a, like, She's been a new, I don't even know how many generations of family she is New Mexican, but a lot, (laughs) a lot, Um, and really does bring a really wonderful public service perspective to this. So it's like, it's really good. There must be women running in California for governor. No? You know, it's interesting. We're, we're still fleshing it out. Uh, there's, there's one woman who's, who's jumped in. Uh, still starting seeing if she can put together the campaign. It's tough to run for statewide in California. And 
and the, and the truth is we always had sort of anticipated Kamala Harris might be in that mix. And then uh, I think wisely she ran for Senate instead to or now just a year ago, but mm-hmm. uh, before. So we're um, what we are doing is recruiting a lot of women to get in the pipeline for future governorships, frankly, in California. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of women in the in the legislature out there, a lot of women in the U.S. House seats. Including I was, potentially Buffy Wicks. I was just I was just going to say a friend of all of ours, a friend of yours, uh, Buffy Wicks, uh, who stepped up to run in California, who's who we've known at Emily's List for a long time. We've pulled we've actually pulled her into panels. She's such an advocate for women when she when she worked for President Obama. And it's just, I'm just so proud. I'm so excited. It's so good to like, when your friends start running for office, this is a very cool thing. Uh, so this is this is part of what we're going to be doing. I think the other thing I just wanted to add is that is sort of what this is about with these 14,000 plus women uh, and growing every day mm-hmm. is to look at to look at their friends and say, I'm going to do this and the encouragement that you get in your community for running. That's, that also, I believe, is going to be just completely changing how politics is working. When we have this many women energized and wanting to have their voices heard in the city councils and the county commissions and the state legislatures, I don't even think we know what the unintended consequences are going to be, but I th- believe that they are going to be extraordinary. I guess my last question would be, um, I, you know, covering the campaign last cycle, I spoke to so many millennial women who were like, oh, well, you know, we're definitely going to see a female president in our lifetime. Why does it have to be Hillary Clinton? You know, and there's really like, what difference does it make who's president? Right. Um, what are you, <laughs> which is kind of amazing that you think about it now. Um, what are you seeing in terms of millennial activation um, happening in the Trump era? Well, of these over 14,000 women who have contacted Emily's List interested in running, uh, over 50 percent of them are under 45. I mean, these these are millennials and, and Gen X being one of one of the Gen Xers here. It is those two generations who haven't been as engaged. Uh, I think there was a an awakening on this election. You know, a lot of um, I had some of those conversations, too, last fall of, you know, why why her. Uh, but they were saying it in an environment that everybody, uh, the party, the campaigns, both parties, both political parties, the media, were all saying Hillary Clinton was going to win. Mm-hmm. So they were saying it in a sort of like, I can I can be contrarian because she's going to win anyway. Well, when she didn't, I think the the slap came was like, whoa, wait a second. What what just happened here? Uh, and and there is a piece of There's a piece of sexism in all of these races for our women. It's better than it was 30 years ago. It's going to be better in 10 years. I believe it. We're pushing through, but it's still there. And now that I talk to a number of millennial uh, women, uh, there's there's sort of a sense of, wow, maybe things aren't quite where I thought they were. Uh, And then some will even say, what does that mean for me? I mean, you see Hillary Clinton out a lot more on the campaign, like not on the campaign trail, but talking publicly. Mm-hmm. And there's controversy around that because there's pe- Democrats who say, well, she's going to put off millennials. She's going to, you know, she is, is, do we do what does the women's movement need a leader? Does she, it doesn't have to be her or, or, you know, is it appropriate for her to be out here speaking so publicly after so soon mm-hmm. after a loss? And I just want, what do you think about that? How do you think that all folks who lose their presidential runs, uh, 
tend to have conversations after they lose. Like, that's okay. This is America. They should be able to do it. John, John McCain went back to the Senate and had a, had a place to work. John Kerry went back to the Senate and had a place to engage. So if you sort of think about sort of the different environments, they all had things to say after the election. Mitt Romney had things to say after the election. So I have, I have you know, no concerns about that. But in your question about leadership, Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I will always see Hillary Clinton ultimately as just a great stateswoman who has who has committed her life to public service, particularly to women and girls around the world. And her voice is incredibly important uh, to continue the advancements of women and girls, uh, particularly around the world. But the new leadership of the party and the leadership of the women's movement, it's on it's coming from the ground. Mm-hmm. It is it is African American and Hispanic. It is Asian American. It is Native American. It is young. It is energized. They are putting together marches. They are running for office. They are starting organizations. That that is the true leadership of the movements right now, and that's that's what's going to drive our our future success. Great. Well, thank you so much for an awesome conversation and for coming on board with the Riveters. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And trust me, we're going to have a lot of great women running for office. And we want to make sure that your listeners get to meet these women along the way, too. That'd be really fun. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. As always, check us out on iTunes. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate and review us. And you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at The Riveters Pod. And of course, as always, I'd like to thank our amazing and wonderful staff, Casey Wolf, our executive producer, Sarah McKaney, who's our content director, Al Daniels, our sound engineer, and by the way, the only dude on our team, Emily Dalton-Niles, our digital director, Manisha Manaparuma, our web director, Hannah Cradock, our research director, and Lauren Thorbjornsson, our promotions director. Thanks again, everyone. Until next time.